Church. This week uh, is a is a, a passage where Paul is speaking to the the Greek speaking Romans, the Greek speaking non Jewish Romans in the church, and he's going to talk about what their sins are. And next week we're looking at a passage where Paul is speaking to the ethnically Jewish Romans of the Church of Rome and what their sins are. So um, let's do this. And uh, the basic thing that Paul is building up in this passage is, is the argument that no one has an excuse before God for sin, right? The same was no one with an excuse could just as easily be, I do not have an excuse and neither do you, right? Uh, that we internally and everyone externally has no excuse. And it's interesting, Paul actually is intending that to build unity in the church, right? So you Gentile Christians, you Jewish Christians, you have sin. Also, you have sin. Let's all come together, right? So this is part of what he's doing in the book of Romans. And so this week, he's going he's gonna to go one sentence at a time, listing out the specific sins of Roman culture. And he's specifically choosing ones that he knows are most offensive to the Jewish members of the church in Rome. All right? And uh, as we go through this list of sins, one of the ones that's going to jump out right away is that um, homosexuality was a major part of, uh, not a major part, but it was a part of Roman culture. Um, and so Paul brings that up. And so as we get into this message today, I'm just going to step out of the frame of the text for a minute and, and, and just bring a pastoral word to you, right? About a month ago, I was given the title of pastor and that is a sheep-themed responsibility where I need to create gentle areas where we come in contact with what God is doing and create just enough safety in the room so that we can engage with what God is saying. Amen? Um, and so, like, if we come to Scripture and ask a question like, what does God say about social media? Guess what? God says almost nothing about social media. So we have to take general principles that are true in scripture, right? The bigger picture character of God, what he says, and then we have to apply it to what, to, to what we choose to do about social media, right? But when we come to God and ask a question about the morality of sex, well, you know, the Bible isn't actually that vague about it. In fact, it would be more accurate to say that the Bible is often awkwardly, uncomfortably, uh, sometimes offensively to us, specific about sexual sins and the morality of sex. And, um, and so that's, that's interesting, right? So that, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And so as we get into a passage, which is being very specific about it, I just want to acknowledge that people in this room are at a lot of different places related to this, okay? Um. Just, just statistically speaking, in a room this size full of people, there's going to be a percentage of people who experience same-sex attraction, right? These homosexual uh, feelings and have never talked about it. Also, in a room this size, there's going to be people who experience uh, same-sex attraction and are on a journey with God, saying, hey, I'm figuring out what this looks like for me to obey God if I'm having these, um, these, these kinds of attractions. And then there's also people in this room that are probably offended that I'm even talking about this in church. And then there are other people in this room who are like, hey, I am not in agreement that this is sin. 
There's people in this room um, who are here for the first time, and their response to what I'm, what I'm preaching on is like, what is the deal with this church, okay? And all of us in one room together this morning uh, are on a journey together, right? And the journey is to understand what God says and bring our lives into alignment with God. And so I also just want to speak a word of hope here, right? Because the purpose of God in any topic, especially when God talks about sin, the purpose of God isn't to bring condemnation, right? Paul isn't just bringing up this list of sins to be like, in you Roman church, you stink, right? No, Paul's putting together this list of sins because he wants to lead people to the gospel, all right? And so I want to speak a word of hope. I have had the privilege of walking in life with what feels like a pretty large number of Christians who do experience same-sex attraction, but have said, have done, made various choices in their life to dedicate their lives in obedience to Jesus in that area. Some of them have, you know, have found grace to be in a heterosexual marriage, and that's, that's where they ended up. So they experienced same-sex attraction, but they also, you know, were able to figure out internally to be in a heterosexual marriage commitment. Other people I've known experienced same-sex attraction and have committed their lives to singleness, saying, hey, this is the way that I'm going to bring my life into alignment with what God says. And so I'm speaking that as a word of hope, and I also just want to honor the people I have known, both men and women, who have made those kinds of choices for the purpose of honoring God, okay? And here's the thing, right? I don't want to just say that and be like, so there, that's the answer, right? Because let's be honest, is this simple? No, not simple, right? At the level of the culture wars, a bunch of ideologues yelling things at each other, they want to make it seem simple so that they can get people to do simple things, right? But at the layer of loving your neighbor and helping people walk in discipleship to obey Jesus, not simple, complicated. Um, but that's the level uh, that we're committed to working at with people, right? That we want to really be involved and walking with people. And the second thing, is this all there is to say about homosexuality? No, not all there is to say, right? This is five minutes of me getting us ready to preach a sermon, uh, which is about sin, okay? I just don't want us to get, I don't want us to get derailed by the beginning of this passage and miss what God is saying, amen? All right, so let's get right into it then and look what the Apostle Paul has to say to us here in Romans 1, 24 through 32. All right, and as, uh, as we bring the passage up, um, I'm just going to give a little context. Um, so again, the Church of Rome, right, it's, a, it's an ethnically diverse church, the kind of church that we want to be in Antioch, Brighton. There's ethnic Jews at the church, right? Some of them probably came from the day of Pentecost and helped start this church. And then there's ethnically Gentile, Greek-speaking Roman Christians at this church. And something happened in Roman history where the Jews were all forced to leave from Rome. And then a few years later, they're all coming back. And when they come back, they find that the, the, the expectations in the church have changed and they have conflict. And the thing they're having conflict about is the law of Moses, also known as the law, right? So when I say the law, I'm referring to the Bible's moral law, at the center of which is the Ten Commandments. Tracking with me? And so they're having conflict about that. 
And, um, and the Jewish Christians are saying, hey, you guys need to get in line with God's moral law. That is not an unreasonable thing to say. Um, and the Greek Christians are saying, you're not the boss of me, and they're beginning to have some conflict about it. And Paul's response to that is to say, y'all have sin, y'all also have sin. <laughs> let's get together, okay? And so um, let's take a look here um, at the passage. So I'm going to read it out loud here. This is Romans 1, 24 through 32. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. All right, so I'm going to pull out a couple pieces of this passage. Uh, let's start with the beginning, right? Therefore, God gave them over. This phrase, God gave them over, appears three times in this passage. What does it mean to say God gave someone over um, to sinful desires? Well, I think the center of this idea is that like God respects our free will, right? So we have moral agency in life. We can make different kinds of moral choices. Uh, and when we make moral choices, where especially when we, when we intentionally disobey what we know God has said, God will allow us to experience the natural consequences of things that we choose. And when, you know, like you may have had that experience, right? You're your, your God-given, Holy Spirit-empowered conscience telling you, don't do that thing, and then you, then you do it, and you, you feel some disconnection between you and God, right? That's God giving you over to the natural consequences of free will choices that we make. And also, too, remember that this God giving them over, it's connected to the previous section, right? Rosie's message from last week, where she talked about, we put our attention on created things instead of the Creator, Right? In ancient Rome, that literally meant bowing down to statues. Uh, in our own culture, it has a lot more to do with the humanist uh, principle that says, um, the humanist principle that says, you know, human beings, that's what's important, right? Not God the creator, the experiences of human beings. And so when we do that, it, it, talks, about, um, it talks about that we get what's called a depraved mind, right? So when our attention gets off of God, and gets onto something else as the center of what is truly important, our, our view of the world gets bent out of whack, right? So if humanity is the center of what's really, truly important, 
then we get, we get bent out of whack with what God is saying, all right? And God, God gives us over uh, to the natural consequences of changing our worldview in that way. Um, all right, now let's take a, take a look at another thing here. Uh, at the end of verse 27, it says, um, men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And this is an interesting verse. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle this verse, and we're going to get into the interpretation of it, because it's one that has been interpreted in a really hurtful and sometimes kind of almost malevolent-seeming way. And I want to make sure we as a church have a, an accurate interpretation of this verse. So received in themselves the due penalty for their error. What exactly does that mean? Well, um, there's an interpretation out there uh, in the 80s and 90s, when the AIDS epidemic was decimating the gay community. There was an interpretation where some people in some weird corners of Christianity were saying, oh, this is what God is talking about. This is the due penalty. Um, and I just want to say that is a bad interpretation of Scripture in a couple different ways. Number one, it's kind of vindictive and mean-spirited. That doesn't sound like God all that much. Number two, it actually doesn't work as an interpretation of this passage. What's probably being talked about are two other things. First of all, um, what's, it says, receiving themselves due penalty for their error. It's probably in context talking about the natural moral consequences uh, that, are, that are happening. And secondarily, it's probably referring also to the sexual impurity, right? This ritual impurity tied to sexual contact. Okay, these are probably the things that this passage is talking about. Um, and it's that interpretation, I just want to make sure we have an accurate interpretation of that. Um, because you, as you can imagine, um, people in the gay community felt extremely judged uh, when people were telling them that the AIDS epidemic was um, an interpretation of Scripture. All right. All right, so let's, let's zoom out here and, and talk a little bit more about sexual practices in ancient Rome. Did I ever, in my 20s, think that I would someday stand up in front of the church and give a little uh, explanation of Roman sexual practices? My, some humanities teacher in my distant past is like, see, you should have paid more attention. Um, all right, sexual practices in ancient Rome. Now, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of very clear rules about sexual practice. In Rome, it was a whole lot more like Boston, where sort of anything that feels good is probably okay if you can get away with it and not hurt anyone's feelings, right? And, but it was a little bit different in Rome, right? So especially if you had wealth and status and power, the sexual rules on your life were largely gone. And so things like adultery and promiscuity were normalized in Roman life, uh, and homosexuality was part of common practice, especially among upper-class Romans. Now, I want to add a layer to that that gives it some context. Remember that Rome was a slave-holding society. So there were layers of power and control that, these, that, that formed the backdrop for Roman sexuality, okay? So it wasn't just that people, um, uh, that adultery was normalized and other sexual practices were normalized. It was that they happened in the context of slave ownership. Are you tracking with me? So, it, so it's not just the sexual aspect, it's also this um, really messed up, painful, controlling slavery aspect that is happening in Roman culture as well, all right? Now, um, so in the same way as our culture, we come into contact with that worldview, and it's complicated. 
That was true in the church of Rome as well, right? So um, the Jewish Christians return to Rome, and they're like, hey, what is the deal with this? We need to talk about this, and they're having conflict over it. And this is the situation that Paul is about to walk into when he visits Rome. And so he's building up his main argument here, uh, which is that Jews, so the Jewish, ethnically Jewish Christians and the Greek-speaking Gentile Christians of the Church of Rome have this in common, that they all have sin and that they all have no excuse for their sin. All right, so let's, let's tackle the last um, five verses here, starting from furthermore. All right, so this is a list of evil things. Now, the New Testament is kind of a fun place. It has lots of lists of evil things. This is not the only one. Many of them are written by Paul, okay? And the Bible has lists of evil things for a couple reasons. One good reason it has lists of evil things is so that we can admit we have evil. We can admit that we have problems. We can admit that we have sin, right? Sin isn't those people. It's us people. Sin isn't them. It's us. Or more accurately, it's them and us, okay? Now, um, this particular list, these are sins of the Roman culture. Next week, we're going to come back around and look at the, the sins of the religious people, which is much more accurately represented by us as the church, as we look at the culture around us. But let's, let, let's take a look what it says here. And... Um, Again, right, coming from the Jewish perspective, what's at the center of the law? The Ten Commandments, the heart of God in moral thinking. Um, let's take a look at this list of um, evil things and compare it with the Ten Commandments, shall we? All right, um, start in verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. In case you're shopping for Christmas card things... How about that verse? Like, season's greetings. They have become filled with every type of wickedness. Or how about they invent ways of doing evil? Like, you get that embossed on your, like, your, like, journal, you know? Oh, this is my life verse. They invent ways of doing wickedness, new ways of wickedness, right? No, like, (laughs) these are not the feel-good verse of the day for, for, to encourage us in our Christian life, but they're an accurate description of the human condition. <laughs> All right, let's start here. Um, they are full of envy, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet. Full of envy, murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Strife, deceit, and malice. Now, deceit and malice conjures up this idea. You mustn't swear falsely. There needs to be an honesty, especially in legal matters. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters. Ooh, God-haters. That's bad, right? Now, my kids at the breakfast table, they wake up cranky. Not every day. Frequently, they do. Hopefully, I'm not dishonoring them. And when they get mad at each other, usually over who ate the last bowl of cereal, they like, they're like, you are, and then you know, their, their, vocabulary of mean, their vocabulary of mean things to say is still kind of small. And so they're just groping out there for something mean to say, and they don't always come up with something helpful. Like, pr- would to God they never come up with God-hater as the thing to curse each other with. And why? Because this is the number one in the Ten Commandments. 
You must love the Lord your God, right? It's a big deal. Insolent, arrogant, and boastful, they invent ways of doing evil. There's an entrepreneurial culture. They disobey their parents. Now, wait a minute. How did disobey your parents get on the list with God, hater, and murder? Well, I'll give you a hint. Disobey your parents. It's in the Ten Commandments. It made the top ten in the heart of God. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. And here's another fun fact about the biblical command to honor your father and mother. In certain circumstances, dishonoring your mother and father in the Old Testament was caused to be put to death. Right? That should be my Father's Day sermon. No, it should not. But are you tracking with me? Right? Why are we using the Ten Commandments as an example? Many of the Ten Commandments in their larger context in the law of Moses were punishable by death. Right? Murder. Even, I don't think in Massachusetts, but many people in many places in the United States, murder is punishable by death. And so when Paul talks about those who do such things, right? They know that God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. That's a reference to the accurate, wholesome, moral law of God. And then when we break God's moral law, when we envy, when we covet, when we lie, we give false testimony, we become those who deserve death. All right, so earlier in this message, I named a bunch of different groups in the room, right? Paul's doing the same thing. He's naming different groups. And he's saying, we want to all experience one thing together in this room. We want to come under one truth together in this room. That's what Paul's saying to these two groups in the Roman church. And I'm saying the same thing to this room this morning. The message for everyone in this room is that everyone in this room is without excuse for sin. Everyone in this room Everyone outside this room is without excuse for sin. The Greek-speaking Romans, the ethnically Jewish Romans are without excuse for sin. John Lux, without excuse for sin. Our church staff, without excuse for sin. Paul is saying that all of us have no excuse for sin. And that's pretty stark. It's pretty heavy. It's not an encouraging word for today. This is what Becky has been referring to as the bad news of the gospel. The gospel means good news. The bad news of the gospel is that we need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from the natural tendency of our hearts toward darkness and evil. None of us measures up against the Ten Commandments. None of us measures up against the righteous, accurate, holy, moral law of God. But Jesus came and he died to pay the penalty for our sin, right? This righteous decree of God that those who do such things are worthy of death, that describes us. And that penalty of death was paid by Jesus. And here's the thing, right? Jesus did not come and make an excuse for our sins, did he? He didn't come and be like, yeah, it's actually not that bad. You're fine. No. Big sins, little sins, things you're really ashamed of, things you're a little ashamed of. Jesus came 
He didn't make an excuse for those things. He didn't just sort of like cover up that part of the list. He paid the price and took the penalty on himself for those things. And here's the thing, right? Jesus was God, guys. This is a God-style solution to this problem. The human-style solution to this problem would be like, let's just minimize it, just kind of make it smaller, less big and noticeable, and just kind of manage it over here, right? That's human response to sin. But the divine response to sin was to come, fully acknowledge it, and then pay the price for it. Amen? That's the way God responds to sin. Like, have you ever seen it happen? You know, like, if you've been in this Christianity thing long enough to start confessing sin to people or having people confess their sin to you or seeing other people confess sin to each other. You ever seen it happen? I have. Oh, man, not my favorite. Where people, like, one person confesses sin to the other person. They're like, hey, I'm feeling really bad inside about this. And the other person's like, Psh, that's no big deal. You need, to, you need to go get some sleep. No, don't do that. Don't ever do that. Why not, right? Our instinctive desire is to help people climb out from under the conviction of the Lord because it is not a feel-good. Our desire is to mitigate the effect of conviction on other people. But when we do that, we're undermining the bigger thing that God does. God identifies sin. He hates sin, but he's doing it so that he can pay the price for that sin. When someone comes to you and confesses sin, you're like, Psh, call that a sin. You should see my life. You know, like, no, don't do that. This person is under conviction. That God-given, Holy Spirit-empowered conscience inside of them is saying, this is a problem. If they're confessing some sin, you don't even think it's sin? You should proclaim forgiveness over them in Jesus' name. Don't analyze. Be a, be a vector for the forgiveness of God in somebody's life. Amen? Because that's not how God responds to us. Right? So the heavenly way of dealing with sin is to acknowledge that it is real, put our eyes on it, give it to Jesus, and let it be fully forgiven forever. The human way of dealing with sin is to rationalize, minimize, and try and sort of just deal with the negative feelings that re the result from sin, right? We want to manage it. Now, there's a lot of things I could say about the way we rationalize and manage sin, but I'm going to put my finger on one in particular that I think is one of the most powerful ways that we do it, and one of, I would say, the most insidious. It's a thought that exists so much inside of people, inside and outside of the church. It's, it's pretty, you know, at the first pass, it seems pretty innocuous, right? This thought like, yeah, it's okay. I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, that's not, doesn't seem like a particularly bad thing to think about oneself, right? Just trying to be a little positive, you know? Positive self-image. I'm a pretty good person. It's not a big deal. Um, people in general want to seem at least a little humble, especially in churchy contexts, you know? I want to see, I want to seem humble. So I don't say that out loud to anyone, Right? But that thought, I'm a pretty good person, it's probably fine. We all think that, I think that. That rationale exists inside of us. And it's an explanation that gets us off the hook of really identifying and dealing with sin, isn't it? Right? It's an excuse. 
I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, it's not a big deal. I'm generally a pretty good person. Like, that's not, Jesus, I have problems. Jesus, I sin. Sin is at work in my life. Help me. But we're without excuse, aren't we? I'm a pretty good person is not an acceptable excuse. And furthermore, it's also not true, right? You know? A perfect God doesn't look at imperfect human beings like, no, that's pretty good. You're probably fine. No. He says, oh, you know, like think about this from God's perspective for a minute, right? God's not up there like nitpicking random things. Think about that. You know, he's not like your third grade teacher who like always made you redo your spelling. That's not God's style. But think about what his character really is like, the heart of God. So I, I, talked, I talked just a minute ago about Jesus dying on the cross to pay for sins. It already happened. So here's the thing. When God thinks about the sin that is happening right now, this past week, this past month, in our life ever, he has already paid the price for it. It's like you already bought your kids tickets to Disney World, okay? You just want them to come to you because the price has already been paid, amen? There's no need to manage it, no need to rationalize. It's not about excuse making. We just need to come to God and be like, this thing. God's like, oh, I've been waiting for you. Oh, I knew about that thing. You didn't hide it from me. I've just been waiting for you to bring this to me so that I can forgive it. I already died and paid the price for that, but I needed you to bring it to me so that we could have this moment, you and me, of letting go of that thing that I already paid for. Amen? And that's what it's like to live without excuse. Living without excuse doesn't mean walking around feeling like a dirtbag all the time. In Jesus' name, it does not mean... Walking around all the time feeling like a dirtbag. Living without excuse means that we just name it. We come to God and say, God, this thing, I feel so ashamed. I try to rationalize it, but my rationalizations are stupid, God. Would you forgive me? And then God forgives us, and we're able to move past it and walk on from there. Amen? So I'd like the band to come up here as we begin to close our service, um, right? So how do we respond as a church to a list of sins, <laughs> right? What is that? What is our response to the list of sins? Well, a couple things, right? I mean, it's very straightforward at one level. We need to admit that there is sin and evil in our life, right? And we're not going to like have open mic where people come up and admit their sins. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to that, but that is not our response this morning. It is a critical interaction between you and God where you need to open your mouth. There's enough space in the room you can get to some place where your neighbor literally cannot hear you. But you need to just admit, we need to just say out loud the evil that we're aware of in our life, right? And don't, you know, don't step into dirtbag mode. Like, interact with God who wants to forgive your sin. Remember that he's just waiting for you. There's an eagerness inside of God because um, he's already paid for those sins. And so that's, that's our first response this morning, right? Let's all stand up together. Our first response is just to, is just to admit it. Just got to admit it. This is, this is true in marriage, right? If you're not going to admit you're wrong, 
man, this is going to be really hard for you to get to the next place in your marriage. Sorry not to speak that over anybody, but you got, y'all got to admit you're wrong today. <laughs> so in our relationship with God, it's true the same way. God, I admit I'm wrong. Would you forgive me? Here's the second thing. We need to admit that our excuses are stupid, okay? You might really like your excuses, but some of the power of of receiving God's forgiveness is admitting that our rationalizations and excuses are stupid. If you don't feel that they are stupid, ask God about it this morning. God, is it okay when I rationalize about this? Just ask God what he thinks about that. All right, so I'm gonna pray here for a minute and then we're just just gonna do business with God in this place. In the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, we invite you. God, we do not want a human-driven encounter with trying to get free from sin. I just believe there is no power in humanity to get us free from sin and guilt and shame. So we invite the Spirit of God in this room right now. We invite the Spirit of God. Would you break off condemnation, that dirtbag feeling? Would you break it off in the mighty name of Jesus? And Lord, let us come to you. You say that you're our heavenly father with whom we need experience no shame. Come in this room. Make space for us to come to you. Make a safe enough space this morning, Jesus, where we can say what we've done out loud to you. And when we've said it to receive the beautiful forgiveness of Jesus, we need you so bad. We have no way forward except with you. We love you, God, and we acknowledge that your law is good, perfect, and beautiful this morning.